There's over 900 ghost towns scattered across the Nebraska landscape. Come with us now. Episode 6, Nebraska Ghost Towns. This is Midwest Ghost Town. All right, welcome to Midwest Ghost Town, a podcast and video channel dedicated to exploring, researching, and telling the story of abandoned America. We tell that story in several different formats, one of them being this here as a podcast, and then we also do videos as well, so you can catch us on both YouTube, on Midwest Ghost Town there, as well as Spotify, where we are doing our podcast format. So we just finished and released our latest short YouTube video, the top five ghost towns in Nebraska. If you haven't had a chance to check that out, I'm going to encourage you to go and check that out. It is on YouTube. The goal, of course, is with Midwest Ghost Town that we're going to try to do a video series of top five ghost towns in all the Midwest. And of course, the question that comes up with all that is how do you rank a ghost town? Because obviously the title, the top five ghost towns, especially in a state like Nebraska that has over 900 ghost towns, impossible. But what I'm looking for when I'm doing that really is a story that's kind of tacked on to that ghost town. If it has a story, I'd probably tell it. But of course, naturally, there was a lot more than five ghost towns. And our hope and our promise to our viewers that we're not going to go anywhere anytime soon. This podcast is going to be around for a while. And with that being said, let's get into today's episode, Nebraska Ghost Towns. Because like I said, we only scratched the surface of the five. And we can definitely do a follow-up video, two or three, doing the exact same thing with all the other ghost towns across the Midwest and America for that matter. But if you break this podcast up, which we will, into three parts... I hope that you come along to each one of these. The first part, we're going to be explaining Areopolis, the ghost city of Nebraska. Also, if you haven't had a chance to go listen to that podcast or watch that um, video, I encourage you to go back. We're going to cover that. The second one we're going to cover is explaining Antioch, the potash capital of Nebraska. So we'll go a little further into that. And then... The third, but of course not the least, we're going to dive right into the five, five more ghost towns um, that did not make the video. So we'll go into five more of those ghost towns. Explaining Areopolis, part one. So the ghost city of Nebraska is what I titled that. And let's talk about that a little bit because, you know, obviously when you hear a title like the ghost city of Nebraska, there are questions. There is maybe a little curiosity on what I meant by that. So the, really the background story for all of that, and you can check that on the video, I go into a side story of a character by the name of John Evans. And this is really important, essential to what we're doing here, not only with this podcast, but also with the YouTube channel, that we know that sometimes when we cover a story like Ghost Towns, that there are other parts of the story. Number one, stories of historical events that maybe surround themselves around that ghost town. And number two, stories of historical people that we know also attach themselves to that ghost town. And this is important because this is vital. The other day I was talking to a friend of mine who is a librarian at the college I work for. And I was talking to Judy and I said, and actually Judy asked me an important question. She says, okay, Dan, ghost towns, 
And when I say this, I'm not trying to pick on you by any means, but who cares, right? So what's the point of ghost outs? I mean, what, what's the big deal? And really, she made a lot of sense because if you're just talking about a town, if you're talking about a building, who, who does care about just that building? If you know nothing about it, you're just going to drive by it every day and you don't really care. But as soon as a story attaches itself to that building, now it becomes something, right? You know, I think about traveling, you know, across the Great Plains and you look over and you're like, there's a grass field. Who cares about that grass field? But as soon as you find out that the Battle of Little Bighorn took place there and that many soldiers died and that you're looking really at a cemetery, now all of a sudden it's not a grass field anymore. Now you have importance. And that's the same thing with the story of abandoned towns and abandoned places. As soon as a story is attached to it, it's completely different. And that's what's going on here with Areopolis, right? So Areopolis, but for the matter of what I'm talking about here is the character of John Evans who comes to the Plattsmouth area. He decides that this is a great place to build a town or a city to attract the Transcontinental Railroad. Now, who is John Evans? And I'm going to this with a video. He is one of the founding fathers of Northwestern University in Chicago. Before that, he was a very popular physician and a very well-known figure in Chicago and in the Illinois area. He had aspirations for politics and became very good friends with President Abraham Lincoln. So now you have this really big figurehead and you're, and you're wondering what's going on here. He decides that he has had some successes with some investments and working with railroads. And he really believes that this is going to happen. And this is the great area for that transcontinental railroad to go through. So he invests in property down there and he starts building this city. To make a long story short, it becomes an absolute failure. And here's, there's a lot of reasons why we can go into a lot of depths of this, but he blamed it on the fact that the railroad was not coming together and they were not building it fast enough over in Iowa and it wasn't crossing and attaching itself quick enough. And mainly because if you looked at the period of what was going on during this time, the construction almost came to a halt because of the Civil War. So all of a sudden we have a character giving up basically on this area. It's bad luck after bad luck. Timing's not right. He basically essentially gets a bailout from his friend Abraham Lincoln. And the president appoints him Instead of the governor of Nebraska, he appoints him the governor of Colorado. So he gets him the, the heck out of Nebraska, go over to the Colorado Territory, appoints him the second governor there, and really the story of John Evans really tragically um, expands. And we'll go into a, little, a quick little synopsis. This is where the story really expands into the story of Chief Black Kettle, the story of the Sand Creek Massacre, Google that, okay? And you're going to find out just a, a whole big story because it just kind of expands and expands and expands and pretty much you're connecting dots that this history is much bigger than just a ghost town over in Nebraska. So Black Kettle becomes this figurehead that's really a champion for peace. He meets with, you know, the politicians, both Evans. He meets with Lincoln. He gets an American flag. He's kind of proud of that fact. And they tell him, just fly the American flag fly the white flag that's going to signal to us that you are not 
hostile. And what was really happening at this time is that there was a fear that was growing between the settlers that were coming into Colorado, specifically the population around Denver, where Evans was, and they were scared that all the soldiers and all the, the, the fighters, so to speak, that would protect the city, they were gone. They were, they were fighting in the Civil War. And so there was this fear that there was going to be this uprising, that the Cheyenne or the natives around the Denver area were going to attack and take over. Evans basically writes up this piece of legislation, paperwork, whatever you want to call it, that basically says, listen, all natives need to basically abide and you need to turn yourself in and you need to you know, put yourself into these areas. And then if you don't agree with this and if you don't abide by these things and you don't go by our rules, so to speak, you are raising your hand and you are telling us that you are a savage. And because of this, you're dangerous and we will go out of our means, and I'm paraphrasing this, by the way, but we will go out of our means to, to basically kill you, to eliminate you, to eliminate the savages is basically the wording that John Evans puts in there. And we can look at this whole thing and we can look at the character of John Evans and say, wow, what an, what an evil man. And really, I mean, in a lot of cases, I would be wrong to say that. But there's one thing that I want to point out, and this is a big deal in history called historical fallacies. It's important to understand that when you look at history, we kind of have this advantage of being in the future, looking back, right? They say hindsight is twenty twenty. We can look back and say, well, you know, that guy, he should be thwarted from history. Just eliminate him. He it was wrong. But if we look through it through the lens of what was going on during the time period, John Evans really wasn't responding any differently than a lot of the the white man leaders, so forth, their view on on not only Native Americans, but African Americans. I mean, their view on minorities as a whole, Chinese immigrants, Irish, I mean, you name it. Historical fallacies, fallacies come into play here. And we look at this and, and we say, okay, but we're not going to totally give John Evans a break here. That's not what I'm trying to do in this podcast. We're going to look and say, look, John made decisions that he felt was right for the territory at the time. Here's where you can see not only his huge discriminations towards Native Americans and his viewpoints, but after the Sand Creek Massacre happened, and let me back up again. If you haven't seen that video, just listen to it, okay? They go on a hunting mission, Black Kettle and several of the the men in the tribe they're going hunting and the women and children and, and unarmed men are left back at his encampment and 700 cavalry come out even though he flew the american flag and the white flag like he was asked to do to begin with it didn't matter they ignored it and they what i didn't totally wipe out his tribe but they attacked his tribe it was a massacre right so well over 100 cheyenne women children the american government gets involved they have a trial because they're like whoa whoa whoa, we got to check into this right they found that the american government was guilty that there was wrongdoing john evans of course was forced to resign and other political aspirations from anybody that was involved in that was pretty much ruined 
But his attitude, you know, if you were to read through several documents that Northwestern University went in their investigation, his attitude towards it showed that he still really didn't care, that he really felt that Native American people as a whole didn't have souls. That was his belief. And so because he believed that, it meant nothing to him that they were basically, you know, absolutely obliterated and massacred. But that didn't stop there, right? Black Kettle, he knew that what was coming. He knew that more pioneers were coming, more white settlers were coming, that white man was more, more powerful. They had a bigger army, bigger guns, and that it meant that children and women and men in his tribe were going to be at harm. Many of the Cheyenne chiefs disagreed with him and thought that they should fight. Black Kettle went on to really wave the flag of peace. But like I said before, it didn't stop some of his own warriors in his tribe to have a different belief and to really go along with other chiefs. And so they were attacking white settlements. It really earmarked them as a tribe that couldn't really be trusted. Custer comes along. He's down in Oklahoma at the time. And he attacks Black Kettle's tribe again. And this time, Black Kettle and his wife are killed. So all these things are are following that story of Oreopolis. And it's important to note because in history, when we look at these things, we really need to attach them to why we're at. Because if you were to go searching for Oreopolis today, you will not find it. There's nothing left of that. I call it a ghost city. There's not nothing left of that ghost town. It's completely gone. The, the college that he formed there, there was a Methodist seminary that he built, was dismantled brick by brick. So that's the story of Oreopolis. And we're going to go ahead and move on to our next portion here in a little bit. want to thank you for following along. This is Midwest Ghost Town. Hey, I just want to take a quick moment. This is Dan here with Midwest Ghost Town. I want to thank you personally for following along, subscribing along. We are on two different type of formats. One is Spotify, which hopefully you're listening to. If you haven't subscribed, subscribe along. We're not going anywhere anytime soon. There's a lot of stories and a lot of history to cover with abandoned history. And of course, we'd like you to follow along. Our second one is YouTube. Follow along there as well. And of course, we're on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. So again, join the conversation of history. Love to have you along. Again, this is Midwest Ghost Town. Okay, welcome back. Here's the second segment. And honestly, the second segment is probably going to lead right into the third segment. And that is explaining Antioch. So if you're familiar with the ghost town of Antioch, you know that you are getting closer uh, to the panhandle out in Nebraska. And it is known as the potash capital of Nebraska. What is potash? It is basically um, ingredients that they use to make fertilizer during the time being. So um, and the history is actually bigger than that. So Antioch, as we know, um, the University of Nebraska at the time had the discovered a way of distilling the potash and making it useful for fertilized making from the lakes in the area. And so today um, you can still see Antioch. It went from a population of 175 to 3,000 in just amount of a couple years. And it, again, the timing was right on this, right? So 
most of the potash that was being made was being made in Germany and in Europe and so forth. And when World War I, right around that time period, took off, there was an anti-German sentiment going on. And so we were cutting that off, not buying that fertilizer from them anymore, which opened up a whole new door of revenue and business streams in Nebraska, especially Antioch. And of course, today it is a bust because once that went away, Eastern European countries, European countries were able to come back in, basically undercut the prices of what was going on with that fertilizer. And now you have a bust situation. And today the population is, or at least around that area, about 25 people. So going on to segment number three, because I really feel this is the whole purpose of why you're probably here in the first place, right? We talked about the importance of ghost towns and that in a place like Nebraska, there's over... 900 of them and so how do you possibly just rank them you don't you just kind of tell the story as is and there's many more there's more than the next five i'm going to share but i'm going to share with you five more ghost towns and so um, with much ado let's get into that let's start with the city of dunlap because i really think or the ghost town excuse me there's a story that's really attached to this dunlap it has kind of like this folklore, this legend attached to it that this is the setting of Stephen King's Children of the Corn, or the inspiration that gave Stephen King the idea of the Children of the Corn, or the movie. As far as I know, you know, this is not this is not the town, the fiction town that is listed um, that he listed. And and the other thing is, is this is not where the movie was filmed. The, the movie, if you don't know the history of the 80s film, Children of the Corn, was filmed in Iowa, actually. Um, how do I know that? Because I grew up about 15 minutes away from one of the settings. A lot of the actors they got from Marcus, Iowa, true story. And in western Iowa, they that's where they filmed it. And so you can see some of the things. That a lot of the stuff, like uh, I heard that the, the old cafe that's in the movie is, has burned down. Um, so a lot of that has changed, but... I'm just going to go out and just say, I, I looked, I, I wanted to find anything that could attach this to Stephen King. And if I'm wrong, you know, by golly, anyone just go ahead and let me know, tell me where I can find this information because, um, I could not find through my research that this was true, that this is where he got his inspiration for that movie. There's another story that's attached to it. And so this is why it really became on my list. I thought, well, I got to talk about these. This is interesting. Supposedly by legend, Calamity Jane's foster dad lived in this ghost town. And again, I couldn't find anything. So immediately I kind of got excited about that. Calamity Jane. Wow. Woo. There's a story there. So I started researching. I could not find any connection of Calamity Jane ever being in Dunlap. You know, it seemed like apparently, you know, with her upbringing in Missouri, I mean, it makes sense that since she ended up in uh, Deadwood, South Dakota, and a lot of it in Montana, and some some in Wyoming, I mean, you kind of hear those stories, it makes sense that she at some point would be on a road heading northward through Nebraska to get up to that area, um, but just couldn't find it. So then I thought, well... You know, there was more legend, more rumors that Calamity Jane supposedly was carrying the child or had child with Wild Bill Hickok. And that that possibly that child, the daughter in that situation, 
Was she given up for adoption? And did she live in Nebraska for a while? Again, could not find that. And I'm sure there's going to be some calamity, Jane. People eventually listen to this and will know a lot more than me on this. And that is okay. Just wanted to just kind of point that out that they brought up this ghost on a Dunlap. I couldn't find any evidence there. So I thought that was interesting. What I do know is this. Dunlap still has a a lot of history that's there. The there is a main building that is still standing and you can you can find that today there was a a piece done um online, you know, if you were to google Dunlap, you would find some pictures of the old general store that as far as my knowledge knows is still standing. So Dunlap is is one of them. The other one, uh let's go to our second ghost town. The ghost town of Belmont is another one that I really feel really deserves attention. And you can find Belmont. It's 12 miles west of Hemingford on Highway 2. It's Norton Highway 271, about 18 miles to the Belmont sign. You'll find that sign and then you're going to drive three miles east on a dirt road and you'll come up on the ghost town of Belmont. Not a lot left there, but what is there, and this is historically significant, is a 689-foot-long tunnel. And this tunnel was built in 1888 by the railroad, and it was used all the way up to 1983. So here you have this tunnel. It was considered an engineering feat of the decade in the late 19th century, according to the Omaha Star-Herald. And it is Nebraska's only railroad tunnel. So you can get up to Belmont. You can check out this tunnel. It's part of history. And again, Belmont makes its mark on my list for a very interesting ghost town to list in Nebraska for sure. Next, I found the ghost town of Mariaville, a very interesting ghost town as well. The story of Mariaville that's interesting is the story that's connected to it, the story of notorious horse thief and convicted killer Doc Middleton. Now, Doc Middleton, who later performed in Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, you know, attaches himself, and the legend has it that he would visit Mariaville with his gang, and then while he was there dining, he would go ahead and buy his gang dinner. And then the notorious legend is, is that he would slip $20 bills under his plate after his meals. So even though he was a notorious horse thief and convicted killer, that he had a heart of gold to those who were serving him and that he was very gracious and giving. So I didn't take the time to see what $20 back, you know, in, in the middle to late 1800s were, but 20 bucks, no doubt would have been a lot of money and a huge tip. The next one is Montrose and Montrose goes down again out in the panhandle of Nebraska. There's nothing left of it. So the only thing left of that ghost town is, is basically a church. So the church is the last building that's standing there. Otherwise, there's no more town there. The church and the cemetery, the Immaculate Conception Catholic Church is still standing to this day. You can visit it. Occasionally, it sounds like they still have mass there. And of course, you can always visit the cemetery. And there's a lot of history connected to both the church and the cemetery. 
But the thing that's very interesting about this is that Montrose is in the middle of the Ogallala National Grassland, and there is a historical story that attaches itself to this town in this area, and that is the story of an army guide who killed Cheyenne warrior Yellowhand. And that story is further told in the Buffalo Bill Wild West show because that character in that army guide who killed the Cheyenne warrior was himself Buffalo Bill. And last but not least, we have the ghost town of DeWitty. And I say last but not least because I really felt like there's an interesting story with DeWitty. DeWitty is in Cherry County, Nebraska, and it has these a couple stories attached to it. One of them, the Homesteading Act. So the this is the homesteading community. This gave opportunity for free land for anyone that wanted to come into Nebraska to own land, to farm it, and give themselves an opportunity, this was it. And this was a community of nearly 200 African Americans. This is the asterisk. Some who were freed slaves after the Civil War came, took advantage of having that free land to start over, to develop it. You can find this on US 83, and this is in the northern sandhills in Nebraska. Now, this was not the only African-American development or community that came about from all this. But this probably was, according to what they noted in my research, was probably the most successful black settlement. And the memories of the relatives and so forth live on with the town of DeWitty. There's nothing left of DeWitty, but the stories and the history as we know it will always live on. So we always know we can go further in this. We will always have stories of ghost towns. There will always be characters that attach themselves to this as well. Through these stories, along with thousands of others, there is value in exploring. And there is value and worth in telling these stories. I plan to keep on marching on through this, and I hope that you choose to come along and join the discussion of history here at Midwest Ghost Town.